You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. But you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced live each Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and on Facebook, facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Show your support for Real Men Feel by shopping at realmenfeel.org slash swag, by visiting digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel, or even text us a tip. You can show some love for Real Men Feel by texting Real Men Feel, that's all one word, to 504-226-5306. You'll receive a link back to complete your tip and choose the amount. This is a weekly program and your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's dive into this week's show. Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. I am your host, Andy Grant. And unfortunately, Apio Hunter, my co-host, cannot join us tonight. But fortunately, luckily, happily, our guest can, because that's what's most important. Um, tonight, I'm really excited to have Cameron Conaway. He is a world-renowned journalist, poet, speaker, and entrepreneur. Cameron's journalism has been featured in publications including Newsweek, ESPN, and The Guardian, while his creative work has been shared by NPR, The Washington Post, and The Good Men Project. He is a recipient of the prestigious Daniel Pearl Investigative Journalism Fellowship, an honor given to one journalist each year. Now, once upon a time, I was a local news cameraman in the 114th largest market in the United States. So I know a little bit, well, nothing about actual journalism, but I do know that's a big deal and that your work is, uh, is hard hitting and far reaching. So, so welcome, Cameron. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm psyched. And, uh, I got to tell you, you've got one of the most varied backgrounds of, of anyone I've come across. You know, we've, we've, we've had certainly a, a number of authors and poets and speakers, but I do think you're the first uh, real martial artist, mis mixed martial artist, I mm. should say, right? So was there overlap? Were you like beating people up and then writing a poem about it? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah there, there was a time that, that was that was my life. Um, <laughs> you know, for yeah, from the time I was, uh, I think, 12. Um, I was, you know, I was an undersized point guard in uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I was going through a, a pretty rocky time where I uh, grew up with an abusive father and I uh, was searching for, you know, what does it mean to be a man now that my mom's at home, my younger sister's at home, I'm being told by counselors that I have to man up and be the man in the house. I have no idea what that means at 12. Right. Um, but I but I thought that it meant making sure the doors were locked every night and, and waiting up until five, six in the morning, if that's what it took to make sure they were good and could start their day, you know? And, um, at that, around that same time, I went to a, a movie rental store and I was heading back into the porn section just to see what that was all about. Maybe that, maybe, you know, I could man up back there somehow. Yeah. They had a man up section. did they? <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, but you know, yeah, they had the, they had the porn section. I'm heading back there and I see a, a VHS, tape with um, Ken Shamrock on the cover. So back in the day, they put mixed martial arts back in the porn section because it was all rated mature, right? Mm. Um, and for some reason, that cover just stood out to me. It was, uh, um, there was just something so raw and authentic about it. Ken Shamrock was the champion at the time. Um, and, you know, I had I'd grown up hearing my dad talk about Bruce Lee and um, kind of thinking about that. And Bruce Lee was a little guy and I was a little guy, right? So uh, I called my mom and I'm like, hey, mom, there's like a Bruce Lee videotape. Can I rent it? They, they said, I need your permission because it's rated mature. And she's like, yeah, 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 go ahead. And man, I took that home. And uh, I remember having uh, like having uh, blisters on my thumbs from rewinding and fast forwarding so much. Completely became obsessed. Um, 
And another champ at the time was a guy named Hoist Gracie. Uh, again, smallest of anybody there and was just whooping people. And I'm like, that's super cool. And so, yeah, the obsession began there. And um, I think just as a small, as a small guy, it was, it was uh, exciting to see the smallest fighter you know, beat everybody. It made me feel like if I could learn the science of mixed martial arts, I could protect my family. You know, I could be the man that, that I was trying to be. So. Huh. so it really fell into the, the undefined task of manning up for you. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's how it started. Luckily I, I, I did fall in love with it. It wasn't all just about the pursuit of manhood. I, I, I started to love the science of it and the training. Um, but uh, it, it quickly morphed into, into something far deeper. And I think um, I'm still feeling the effects of it today in terms of my, my body's broken down. And, you know, I, I think I tried to mask a lot of what I was dealing with as an abused boy by perpetuating abuse on others in some way. And mm. so it took, took years to unpack that one. But that, okay, was, so the, like, that was the introduction into, into mixed martial arts, you know. How, how conscious were you at, you know, in your early teens that, that you had been been through abuse and you had something to process emotionally um i was only conscious of the hurt mm. you know um just the just the visceral uh pain and feeling of neglect um that was that was about it and i knew that when i felt those feelings and i pushed myself to the breaking point at the boxing club i felt better afterwards <laughs> uh, and so i just kept doing that for you know six seven eight years um and got to a point where I realized it was, in a lot of ways, just a Band-Aid. I wasn't actually getting, getting to uh, any kind of healing stage. I was just I was masking it by fatiguing myself to a point where I couldn't think about it anymore. Hmm. So were yeah. you writing at all at this point, too? Was, or did that come later? Uh, that, came in, that came in college. So, yeah, I um, went to Penn State Altoona and was um, signed up for criminal justice, of course, because I wanted to put anybody even remotely close to my father in prison. And so I'm going down the list of majors and I was like, yeah, of course. Um, and two to three years into the program, I realized that criminal justice is a far reaching field and it, it is not about just putting bad people away. And, um, people aren't just bad. They are complex beings. And um, so, you know, I think it was my third year I had to take an elective and I took a uh, introduction to poetry. Um, went to, again, I was going down the list. I'm like, ah, I don't, nothing resonates. And then I saw the poetry class and I was like, man, you know, kind of flash back to the Bruce Lee videos. You put water into a teacup, it becomes the teacup. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be like water, my friend. And I was like, maybe if I study that, I will be a better fighter. Um, which didn't turn out to be the case, but I fell in love with poetry and that started that journey. Cool. So you're kind of hoping it was like a, a Zen poetry class. Totally, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, so you obviously really took to writing and expressing with words, but I, I just find it fascinating that you 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 didn't um, as as a teenager at all. No, no, yeah. I mean, I was just I was an athlete. You know, I like spent the days at the playground. Um, writing wasn't something I did. So, uh, I think you know I had the best possible poetry teacher I I could have, Lee Peterson. Um, who her first book was uh, about the war in Bosnia. So this wasn't a poetry class where we're learning ABAB rhyme schemes, right? Like we're learning about hard hitting stuff in the way that poetry can actually be uh, a vehicle for, for social justice issues. Wow. Um, and yeah, so obviously that resonated as well, right? I was like, wow, you can, you can fuse these worlds together. Um, and, you know, I think just being, being from a small town, it's, it's very easy to see things black and white. It's, it, it's just a, a very easy way to fall into thinking. And uh, the poetry class avoided that at all costs. It was all about the gray in between. And so, hmm. you know, that was when I, at the end of that class, I was like, I'm going to study poetry the rest of my life. Um, regardless of if it helps me financially in any way, this is something I need to practice, right? So. so, so it wasn't the lucrative career choice, the option of poetry that lured no, you in. <laughs> no, are you surprised by that? <laughs> yeah, I'm shocked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I, I assumed 2018 in America was just the perfect time to be a male poet and just just rock it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not definitely not. Cool. So, so you were going for heavy hitting, you know, personal things. It it, it wasn't uh, you know roses are red, violets are blue. It, it wasn't that kind of level at all for yeah, you. Yeah, you know, it, it started just writing poems uh, on hikes, right? Where I would I would. Uh, you know, the exercise would be writing about the, the bark of a tree. And then you take three steps forward and you look at the bark again. And then three more steps. Now you can see the ants in the bark. 
it's an entirely different experience in just nine steps, right? So I started writing poems about that, just um, uh, what I call small noticing. It's just kind of thinking about the small aspects of, of our lives that we, you know, we typically, typically don't slow down enough to see. Mm. Um, but I, I had that social justice bend in me for sure. And so that ended up, uh, that came out a few years later when my wife and I went to Thailand and started covering sex trafficking there. So that was, that opened up the, the journalism world. Yeah. Oh, so that was, so you, you weren't a journalist until that trip? No, I have, I have no formal training as a journalist. Hmm. Uh, and I studied creative nonfiction in grad school um, and had written a few books of poems. Uh, the first book was, um, I taught poetry in an all-female juvenile detention center, which was amazing. Um, but we moved to, to Thailand. I was, uh, this gets back to your intro. I was spending half the day kickboxing and half the day writing about sex trafficking and writing poems and stuff. Um, but I saw, you know, I saw a, um, it was like a, probably a two minute clip on CNN, um, um, about six to seven year old boys that, uh, in right outside of Bangkok that had all had HIV from being part of the the sex trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that and here I am sitting in Bangkok, right? And so I just felt like that clip did not, did not tell the story. It did not tell the full story. And this is at a time when I think even the UN's definition of human trafficking at that point didn't talk about boys and men. So, you know, boys and men were not part of those kind of conversations about sexual abuse and sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. And uh, something about hearing that these boys were so close um, made me realize I had to I had to go tell that story and uh, poetry wasn't going to be the way to do it. Um, <laughs> so I, I told a, a long form, oh man, 1500 word story, I think. And I ended up pitching it to CNN. Uh, CNN wrote back, they wanted me to cut it in half. And to which I said, no, that was already the, the fault of the first story. I think it was too short. Right. And pitched it a few other places and um, was waiting, was waiting. I just felt like it was such a, story that had to be told. I mean, I met these boys firsthand and I'm watching them smile and laugh and play hopscotch. And it was just, yeah, the, the resiliency of what they've been through and where they were now. Right. So I uh, ended up sending it to Lisa Hickey, the good men project who responded in like 60 seconds flat. She's like, I'll take it. <laughs> and from there it started that, that that's where my journalism career started. Cool. So yeah. was it always then you're kind of a freelance journalist and traveling the world and looking for just stories that, that pulled you in for some reason? Yeah, I never, I've never been part of a, a group. I've always been independent. Um, and, you know, that, that issue, uh, I think I felt very tethered to it because I, I didn't understand pain and trauma to that extent, but I, but I understood what it means to be a small boy that can't take care of himself, mm. just at that very fundamental level. Um, and that's what I saw in them. And so, you know, I'd go to Cambodia and Malaysia, wherever there was a story to be told about trafficking, uh, I would go, I would go tell it. Um, yeah. That's amazing. So is that, was that the kind of work that got you the, the awards and the, and the notoriety or? Yeah, I think just connecting, just connecting with people while I was over there as well. And um, the fact that I, you know, I, I didn't have a, an organization telling me what to do. I didn't have to deliver six pieces a day for so-and-so. I could really kind of pick the stories I wanted to tell. Um, so I ended up meeting uh, some malariologists over there because that was another issue. I'm seeing all of these people die from malaria. And I'm like, wow, that wasn't something I ever grew up thinking about. Mm. Um, so ended up writing a piece about malaria that, that uh, Newsweek picked up. Um, and then, again, we were we were over in Southeast Asia, and there's a genocide happening next door in Burma, right? And it's, it's a genocide in many ways being fueled by Buddhist monks who uh, have captured the Western imagination as the most peaceful people in the world, right? And here they are perpetuating immense violence on the Muslim population. Uh, so I pitched that story, and that's kind of where the Daniel Pearl uh, Award came in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And, and again, during all this time, though, you're, you're still in the mixed martial arts world as well? Yeah, yeah. So hmm. what, what was amazing in Thailand is kickboxing, Muay Thai kickboxing is their national sport. Hmm. So you can actually get a visa to, to study kickboxing, um, which was amazing. So I was, yeah, I mean, I, over there training for probably two years. And mixed martial arts was just picking up steam over there. So they just, I think the, the second year I was in Thailand, they had their first ever sanctioned cage fight. So they just got their first cage. 
And it was like super exciting in Thailand, right? Um, so I got to cover that as a journalist and write about it and, I, and just kind of work with this new wave of Thai fighter that was coming up with a kickboxing background, but had no idea how to, how to choke and how to do takedowns and all that stuff. So I was able to, to kind of teach and be taught all in one, which is just a beautiful thing to do if you can pull it off, you know? Cool. And were you also, you had mentioned teaching poetry at the, uh, the juvenile school. Were you, were you doing any of that in the travels as well? No. So they had a, they had a big um, kind of slam poetry movement that was, and still is taking off in Bangkok. So I was, I was part of that a little bit, um, talking about masculinity and some of those issues that I grew up with, but wasn't teaching, teaching at that point. Cool. So your, your most recent book is, I believe, your sixth book? Yes. Is it? Great. So that's, and that's, so that's called The Man Box. Yes. Right. So it sounds like masculinity has been one of your core themes since you, since you really started then. Yeah. I mean, I've been, it, the, the door opened with Good Men Project, right? Like, it, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a scholar in masculinities or gender studies. I just know from my experience when I've, when I've been a mixed martial arts fighter, I've, I've been called a bully. I've been called a meathead, um, right? Those kind of comments. Uh, when I've been a poet and identified as a poet, I've been asked about my sexuality. <laughs> so um good men project opened the door for me to to those conversations where i was reading so many submissions come in from so many men who had dealt with similar issues and uh, i got to share a few of my own and just just learn it was an amazing experience um so that that was where i first heard the term i think it was mark green um now that i think about it that's where the term man box came from like this societal construct that we're all contributing to about what a man is supposed to be and not be um, uh, yeah. And then from there, I've just, you know, it, it, I think once that door opens for you, you start to look around and see everything through that lens. Um, and so, you know, similar to what I did with malaria, where nobody had written poetry about malaria, except for Dr. Seuss, I think, uh, years and years ago, right. For, for the army, when he was part of the army, um, they, they enrolled him to write poems basically for the soldiers to read when they were out in tropical areas to learn about malaria and how to avoid it. But I was like, man, nobody's ever written a serious book of poetry from various angles about malaria. And so, um, yeah, I, I started kind of piecing a few poems together that had that masculinity theme running throughout it. And I was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go all in, create an echo chamber and, and see if I can pull off a book. So, cool. yeah, works so, out. So what, what, it, I, what a man is supposed to be, I don't know if that was Mark Green's original definition, but like what, what does the man box mean to you at this point in your life? How would you define it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to, to say it's a societal construct, it's like, uh, what does that mean? Uh, for me, there's, there's so many aspects of our society that have, that still do tell men, um, uh, you know, what, what is the best way to function in a society? And so much of that comes through, uh, religious pressures. So much of that comes through adopting the good and bad mindset, um, so much of that comes through, uh, through the, the, the culture that is passed down to boys through their, their grandfathers and their fathers. Um, and unfortunately, so much of it is about being what, what isn't the way a little girl is supposed to be brought up. Um, so all of that kind of gels to this point where uh, I think boys, boys grow up in a, in a very toxic environment where they're um, you know, not able to show their emotions. So a lot of things get buried. And then a lot of things resurface in horrible ways. Um, and everybody kind of points the finger about why it happens. And I think that's why I felt like a, a book of poetry might be, um, might provide some value because there, there isn't a single reason why it happens, right? Like this is, this is stuff going 3000 years back. If you look at even the Buddhist scriptures, the way it's, the way it's talking about men and women, um, even today in, in, in Thailand, women are not allowed to, to, touch the Muay Thai kickboxing ring because they are impure creatures, right? So there's just been a lot of um, men throughout history who have made up stuff to benefit themselves, including religion. And, um, and it, yeah, it manifests itself in really toxic ways in my opinion. Yeah. So, and so you've done a lot of traveling. So I, uh, I believe there's a man box everywhere, <laughs> but have you, you know, yeah. do you, is it different in each country or have you found any, Paradise Island where no one's in a box? Yeah. No, I, I, think, um, I think that's what really solidified the idea for me. This wasn't just, uh, this wasn't just like an, an American idea where, you know, it's just us dealing with it or it just has to deal with our 
school shooting situation or something. We, we saw, we saw the man box manifested in all throughout India. Most places we went in India, um, Thailand, Cambodia, you know, there's, there's always this sense of, um, male dominance and there are societal, you know, actual roles that have been created, um, and signs that have been put up, um, you know, basically to, to benefit women, to benefit men and, and to like subtly discourage women from participating in certain acts. Right. Um, so the fact that that spans across humanity, um, and spans across the globe everywhere I've traveled is, is, uh, was, was kind of heartbreaking, you know? So what are some ways that, that you personally have found to, to kind of break down and, and, and live your, live your life outside of that box that, that you were taught by society and religion? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been, I, I've just been incredibly fortunate where, um, the, you know, the situation I grew in with, with, a a, a dad who was certainly trapped in the box, um, you know, through some fault of his own, but also just because he, he that's what he grew up in. Right. Um, you know, his, his departure from my life, uh, meant that, uh, another amazing man, my, my stepdad filled the role. Um, and it was from him that I got to see, you know, just the way he interacted with my mom, with my sister and with other men, and, you know, um, that, that he served as a role model for me. Uh, I, I got to see him show his emotions and it was, it was fine. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't say the impact that he had on me. So I think like when I look back, it's, it's in large part, the people that you surround yourself by, um, you can surround yourself by a lot of toxic people and that it rubs off, you know, yeah. um, the good men project obviously opened up a, a, a lot of perspectives for me. Um, my stepdad, I had my, my next poetry teacher, the next semester, um, was you know an amazing basketball player benching like 350 pounds and he was a, a world-renowned poet right so he would come into class like drenched in sweat and ask me if I wanted to play pickup after so again it was you know I, I had him to kind of bounce these ideas off of as well yeah um, cool. and I think from there I just started started looking at um kind of different pockets of men and how they how they interacted or shared their emotions or didn't and um I think from there when you're exposed to enough um, diversity like that, you start to piece together who you want to be, right? It's, you have to see it modeled for you. Um, yeah, that's how it came. Cool. So, so it sounds really like, um, you navigating what it means to be a man was your journalism training. Totally. You know, yeah. yeah, no, that's, hmm. yeah, well said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like, like being a witness of various men, not living trapped in some one single definition. Or yeah. seeing men that lived across and were, you know, were blurring boundaries and really yeah. gave you the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if permission is the right word, but gave you the realization that, right. that you could. Yeah, I think permission is actually a perfect word. Yeah. Um, that, because I think the default is that you don't have permission. Right. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. And I really like what you said earlier that, you know, I mean, this is always apparent, but I, I haven't heard it said that so much of the man box is not doing what girls do. Yes. Yeah. So it's just that, that, you know, example of what not to be, again, doesn't help you with what to be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there's a quote, I think it's Tony Porter, but it, it's something like, um, if you tell a, if you tell a little boy, don't be like a girl, what is that teaching him about girls? And what is what is that teaching him about himself and what he's supposed to be? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, not good. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in, in your various <laughs> boxes that you operated in sure what, what, was everybody open to the notion that you were, were a poet or did you get some flack in the uh, in the athletic world or yeah it was interesting so I think when my when my poetry career started to take off um I was I was always I just always felt more comfortable around athletes so when I was when I was at universities I would always make sure that uh you know the football team showed up and the basketball team showed up I wanted to pull in these different communities uh, to talk about poetry, right? Like, and, and bring in Muhammad Ali and Bruce Lee. And, you know, um, so that was always kind of the group that I, that I felt comfortable in, but it was also the group that I felt a lot of pushback from a lot of questions from that, from that audience were like, so how long have you been gay? That was always, a, that was always kind of a, a fundamental question. And, you know, obviously that there's just so much wrong about that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's fundamentally saying there's something 
wrong about being gay, first of all. Right. Um, but then it's, yeah, it's tying this thing that I've been so passionate about to, to sexuality, which is always interesting. Um, but I think for the most part, other than that kind of hyper macho group, it's, it's been pretty accepted, which is, which is good. Yeah. And have you seen um, over the years, is, is the notion of, of poetry somehow defining you as a gay man? Is that going away at all? Or is it just as strong as ever? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I have a few university speaking gigs coming up and it's been a few years, so we will see. We'll see what the first question is then. <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. Um, Maybe it's at least gone down. <laughs> <laughs> I, would like to, I would like to hope that. The end of the QA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really neat. And so what, what's been sort of been the response to uh, the, this latest book? Has, it, has, it, has this been out? Has the man box been out long enough for you to have a response? Um, yeah, I think it came out April 23rd. Um, I've had a few people reach out to me on Twitter, which is great. Um, you know, the, the one thing when I've talked about masculinity and I've been to like, you know, most universities in Virginia when I was there for a while, Dartmouth College, um, you know, and some of the audiences were quite big, 200, 250 people. And, and I'm giving a, a, a broader conversation about kind of gendered products as well, where we have, you know, there's, there's tissues, they're the exact same size but one box has like a steel cage on it and the other one has flowers on it. Right. So uh, I just get them to think about those kind of things. But a, a lot of um, times when I leave there, I'll have like three, four five different guys reach out to me and be, and just say, man, I've, I've really struggled with some of these concepts. I have uh, felt pressured to engage in certain activities that I knew were wrong and didn't, didn't want to, but I, I felt that I, I wasn't going to be respected among my group of men and, that has started a lot of friendships and dialogues um, with people who, you know, it, it makes me grateful that I could make them feel safe enough to reach out, you know? So right. I'm hoping that that happens as well with, uh, with the man. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're being that example, that role model, you're, you're giving other people the permission that, Oh, I don't have to just be this one thing. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I gosh, I think it was at Dartmouth. I had a guy reach out um, and I, I spoke to him afterwards a bit, but he was, he was the, the standout on the wrestling team but played violin and like violin, the violin was his, was his heart and soul. Um, and he, you know, opened up to me about, he was only pursuing wrestling cause that's, that's what his dad wanted him to do. And that's what a real man does to take care of his family and all those very similar things. Right. But like in his heart, he's a violinist. Um, so yeah, so there's, it just made me feel like I'm not alone. There's, there's so many out there that are navigating this as well. And yeah. um, it's been cool. I mean, there's so many gender studies departments now that, uh, that are, are pulling lessons from the feminism movement into, you know, in, into the study of men, which is fantastic. So. Yeah, I can't imagine, I don't know what my 13-year-old self would have thought of like, oh, I can go to college and study the meaning of men? Like, <laughs> that would have uh, interested me or horrified me, I'm not really sure. But, yes, yes. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, I'm glad to see that the, the discussions are happening, be it, be it in a classroom, be it via speakers like yourself, uh, poetry, whatever it is to Andy, I mean, like, what, what was your foray into real men feel like the fact that you had to put together a show real men feel and that, that there's an audience for it. And that there's so many insights to glean from it. Like, what was your big moment where it was like, you know, we need to open this discussion up far larger. Yeah. So for years I've worked as a coach and I'm a very spiritual guy. I go to a lot of personal growth events and it, nice. I'd sometimes be the only man right. in a room of 50 women. Um, <laughs> And women I would meet, women, female clients, always assumed I had this, you know, huge clientele of men coming to me. I'm like, no, <laughs> like, you know, one, one out of 10 clients might be a, a man. And uh, so I just, it got me thinking and like, you know, and, and a big part of this show is, is reminding men that they're actually human beings nice. and that they have emotions. So I, what I've decided, you know, I think men really have to be called out like, hello, man you're allowed to feel things and you know, it's encouraged and you'll feel better if you do it. And so it really started with that. And I was talking out loud to someone. Um, they asked me to come give a talk uh, about masculinity. And I was like, who the fuck am I to talk about this? I question everything. I don't know what the hell I am. And, and through that work, I just come up with the phrase like, well, I, I did, it was a stream of consciousness. Like what if real men were this? What if real men were that? And like nice. real men feel was like nice. what we thought. And yeah. you know, not instead of tough, not instead of much, just, as part of it all like what if real men feeling was part of what was ex expected and accepted and encouraged and i ju i just liked it and nice 
yeah, this, this show started two and a half years ago. Um, the idea was to do it once a month. And by the second episode, I was like, this is, this is a blast. Let's go weekly. Super cool. Yeah. Have you discovered, so just in a lot of people I've talked to, um, you know, even if you get to the point where it's like, you know, you're supposed to feel and you know, that's a good thing. You have built up a habit over 10, 15, 20 years of not that it's, you haven't practiced it. You're, you're not actually sure. So you, have you, have you had conversations like that with, with men as well or, or yourself even? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and so in my personal experience, like, um, I had tons of emotion. I knew I was bottled up. I knew I had to get stuff out. And like age 14 to 15, mm. I had to get drunk to cry. Oh, man. And that's pe- people like, uh, you know, and, and I've been rehab and stuff. So and all the questions are, well, why do you drink? Like, so I can sure. feel. <laughs> like, so oh, I get the shit out of me. Like, what? People like drink. Did some people drink for like fun or to do stuff. I didn't, you know, I drank right. alone because that's what worked. And, but yeah, I would drink to cry. And I would feel better after it. Then I just you know, realized, you know, this there might be a better way to do it. <laughs> um, maybe I could just feel without being drunk, you know. But, yeah. but again, that, that's, you know, was my avenue, which I do not recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I, just, you know, I, I battled uh, depression and suicide um, multiple attempts in, in my teens. Mm-hmm. And I turned down every time someone tried to help me because I thought that's what a man does. Right. right. I don't want, I don't want to be a pussy. Right. right. I don't want, I'm not, I'm not weak. Mm. I'm so strong that I'm going to shut up and I'm just going to disappear in the middle of the night. Right. Um, I thought that was manning up. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, slowly, <laughs> painfully slowly, I learned that that was not true. So, yeah. you know, it came to the point, I love discovering things that I thought were true or bullshit. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love when, when someone gets to that point, like everything I used to believe is, is a crock of shit. Oh man. Like that's so liberating. Right. Um, that's what I found, you know, the uh, talking about busting, busting open the mail, man boxes, realizing that, you know, the box is just, it's a collection of freaking lies and, and boundaries. That aren't real. <laughs> so well said. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And, and it never ends. You know, I keep doing things that I used to make fun of all the time and things that I, you know, um, but again, I, I, I believe we're all here, man, women, child are here to grow and expand. Right. Um, so if, if the, if the man box lives on, but it keeps expanding. Awesome. And I, ideally that's what it is. I agree. This, I agree. Infinite, you know, cause we all navigate with labels and judgments and, and that's fine. So if you want to put me in a box, great, but it better be a fucking big box, man. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I, so, like, yeah, Joshua Gray is, is on the line, um, listening in. Another amazing poet who's you know written a book about Shakespeare and touched on some of these topics as well. I, it, it's so much of it is about who you surround yourself by, and um, you know, people like him. There, there's a writer I love, David Carpel, as well. I've connected with him. He's right there with me talking about some of these issues, um, and it's been cool. I think over the years to watch as universities have expanded. Um, Joe Bowman's at the University of Richmond, like running all kinds of conversations with the entire university about, about the man box. Like mm. amazing, right? That, that was not happening 10 years ago yeah. um, at, at that scale. So it's, yeah, it's cool. I think the, the, the box is expanding, expanding, hopefully to the point where it just disintegrates. That would be lovely <laughs> as a, as an end goal. Um, and so I, yeah, I had, uh, I had another friend out here, Lindsay Repko. She, she invited me into, into her school to, you know, talk to high schoolers about some of this mm. stuff, right? So again, it's, um, it's part of a larger conversation that, um, that it, it just wasn't a decade ago. So right. that's, that's got to be a good thing. I have to kind of oh, put yeah. hope no. that that is a good thing, right? So, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I totally agree. And the, the, it, it, it's a conversation that can't happen often enough. It can't involve enough people. So uh, yeah, I, I love how, uh, again, your multi-pronged approach of, of, of athletics, of, of journalism, of poetry, of just living your life, of, you know, an entrepreneurship and, and yeah. uh, being willing to be seen, um, mm. all of your facets and, and your vulnerability and your sharing. And um, that's what I love to keep finding in men today. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. That means the world, man. Um, <laughs> I'll say I've, mom's on the line. So, oh. I mean, I got to give a shout out to, to mom who's, you know, allowed me to be myself and saw that I was, uh, saw that I was kind of naturally empathic and never, you know, never once shut that down, mm. you know? Um, and so I think it's part of, uh, part of the larger discussion, but there's often an idea that it's just men shutting each other down. Um, 
women live by the rules of the man box as well. And they shut men down as well. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I look and back they- and I'm like, man, I had, I had my mom who encouraged empathy uh, and, and my wife, Maggie now, you know, she, we've been together 10 years. She studied international peace and conflict. Right. So like she totally gets these issues uh, and has allowed me to blossom as well, you know? So. But that's cool, but it's kind of sad that that's the degree needed to deal with a man <laughs> in America. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is true. Yeah. You know, I've got a question about the the poetry process. Mm. Um, you know, I <laughs> I insisted that they were songs, but I have to admit that I probably wrote a lot of poetry in high school. But because okay. uh, I, did, I didn't play music, I didn't play an instrument, but I insisted my poetry were songs because <laughs> nice. that was more manly to me. <laughs> but um, you know, does it just did you just get like a download? Did it just come to you, or is it painstaking over each word, or how, what, what's your? Man, it's process? it's a mix, you know. So I. I enter into, and it, it, it's different from poet to poet, you know, some, some do have that kind of muse moment and then a poem forms in three minutes. Um, I have to go into each project uh, with, a, with a book in mind and with a theme in mind. So um, day one, when I knew I was going to write about the man box, you just start seeing everything differently from there. You start seeing billboard signs that you've passed a million times and now you see the the kind of little masculinity tilt to it that you didn't see before. Um, So from there, you know, uh, little, little ideas would come. I I have a, you know, an app on my phone that I just speak into when, when an idea arises, I'm always taking little notes here and there. Um, And then from there, it's, um, you know, it is kind of a painstaking (laughs) process, to be honest. It's not a, it's not a, you know, paint by numbers. This isn't something that, uh, well, not yet, but machine learning cannot write poetry (laughs) by God. Um, it's getting there, I'm sure. But um, yeah, for me, it's always I, I take those little pieces of ideas and, and try to coalesce them into something that speaks to something larger than all the pieces could. And, and, um, and then it's just the ear for language, right? It's just line breaks and language and those kind of formal poetics and how they play together. So, Do you focus on how a poem sounds as you read it out loud or more how it sounds in your internal voice reading it? Cause I know they're, they've got to be different. Um, yeah, for me, I mean, I'm a, I'm a poet on the, on paper. Like I, 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 you know, I've never been a performance poet. Um, some of, some of the ways that my poems read the, the, and I've been praised and like cursed at for the way I use line breaks. Um, cause I've had people read my work in public in public spaces and they saw a line break and they weren't sure if they should pause there and it just disrupts the whole. Um, yeah. So for me, I think it's that, it's that internal voice. And I, I would rather do something and it's probably pretty old school, but, but interesting on the page where, you know, something happens at the end of, at the end of the right line. And there's, there's a fragment of a second where I plant that thought and then it's answered on that following line. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's not time for that in a, in speech like it, it just happens so fast that I, I i know i would go to so many poetry readings and i I'm, I'm sitting there taking notes but i just know i miss so many nuances that i i wish i had the, the book in my hand hmm. so yeah for me it's it's mostly the internal cadence yeah cool and and we had spoken once before before the show and i i think you had said that this book was actually done quite a while ago it was yeah this yeah this this has been sitting for about a year um, yeah, my wife and I have been on a, a pretty extensive journey. So she, she had to have her ninth knee surgery. Um, she was a standout soccer player and, and, um, she had that surgery still, still really couldn't, couldn't walk a block. We were in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, um, uh, there was one guy in San Francisco who could get her back on her feet. So we went there, uh, had surgery, but so it was just this kind of, it was madness, right. Of, of kind of traveling and packing things and, put it on hold. And, uh, um, and we had an election happen during that time period that made me feel like I need to go back into this book, um, through the lens of, of what has just happened in our country. And, um, and so, you know, I'd say probably 10 per 10% of the book changed a few new poems arose. Uh, I tweaked a few all based on, um, current events, I guess. And, uh, the way, um, you know, a person who's, who's very much representative of, of what it is to be in the box and, um, and be little people and bully people and to be praised throughout their entire career for engaging in those actions. And then to rise to the level of, of a uh, president, it's um, yeah, it made me feel like I still had work to do. 
Uh, good, that was going to be my question. Did, did the, the shift in circumstances uh, mean that some things you wrote weren't true or was more that, oh, I have to address what's happening right now? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I don't know that things felt untrue, but um, there had been a lot of shootings in that time as well. And so uh, I just, I think I went back into it through the lens of, um, you know, through the lens of politics and violence that I, that I don't think I had when I wrote it the first time. Um, and then obviously, you know, you look back at your work that you wrote three months ago and you're like, God, that's terrible. And then, you know, you find things and you tweak and you tweak. It's just kind of uh, the way poets work. Um, I remember I had a professor in grad school. She was, you know, she always talked about, there was a single line in one of her poems she's been working on for a year, a single line. And she's just been tweaking and playing and tweaking. Right. Um, not that I'm that, you know, OCD, but there is something about that where, it just doesn't ring right. You don't feel it. So a, a year, a year passing, I've, you know, there was a lot to change. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Um, I, I didn't ask ahead of time. And, and since you've just stated that sure. you like how your poetry lives on the page as opposed to, to spoken, but is, is there anything you would like to share from the man box while we have you here? Sure. Yeah. I can read a, read a few poems here. Um, let me take one second and, they're not all memorized? What, what's the deal? They're not memorized. Yeah, I can believe it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the opening poem was, was one that was inspired by uh, the, the gap in between there. So, boys will be boys. Boys will be boys, they say. And those boys will grow into men who carry ignorance with pride and privilege like spears. When one of those boys becomes president, we will ask how it happened, but not why we watered the seeds. So again, I was really trying, and I think it was a haiku at first about privilege and ignorance and things like that. And um, went back into it. I'm like, you know what? It's positioning it as though it's only others that have the privilege and, and the ignorance, and and as though we haven't all collectively participated in this, and and you know, in, in one sense, voted for this. Yeah, it felt like I was I was casting way too much blame. I think there's blame. There's plenty of blame to go around. We're all. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we, we've all helped build this box and this set of circumstances. And Man. yeah, yeah, every, everyone's responsible. So true. Um, some of the other parts that I wanted to weave in, uh, you know, are, are I wanted to have a mix of uh, kind of far reaching, you know, wider impact, generalized stuff like that, but, but also pulling in some of my own memoir, I guess you could say. Um, so the next poem is called Fuel and It Grew. There was a time uh, in Altoona where, you know, I hadn't talked to my father or seen him in probably, I don't know, 12 years. And we have an awesome gas station in Altoona, Pennsylvania called Sheets. Best place ever. And um, what, what anyways, something an awesome gas station. It's just like you, you can just order anything you want. The food is fantastic. Like it sets the benchmark for gas stations. Right. Uh, anyways, I'm coming out and I, uh, and, I, and I look back and I'm holding the door and make eye contact with with my dad and like all those years have passed, right? I, I hadn't seen him since I was probably a 12 year old boy or something, but he has these piercing green eyes and it was just like, man. Um, and then I went in my car and that was it. it. But we just had that three second moment, but there was so much to unpack about what happened there. So, so, so no words, you just, no words. You saw each other, you knew who each other were and you just get yeah. going. Yeah. So this poem grew from that. It's called fuel. He was leaving the gas station and I held the door for him, caught a glimpse, my father. The sleeves of our winter coats brushed together, his green eyes, the gap of 15 years closed quick. I didn't want to watch him get into his car, but I wanted to, so I did. Stole a few glances, saw a face different than the one I stared into as he painted mine for Halloween. Saw hands smaller than those that caused me harm. He started his car, backed out, pulled away into a smoke cloud. What a shame that lies make the same sound as truths, that we feel so large under a low roof, that we can hear engines, but not the stories we create and then leave behind. Uh, yeah, again, that, there were many notes taken after that brief encounter with him. And um, one of them was just the fact that he, he didn't know what I, what I had grown into. He, he didn't know that I was madly in love and, had traveled the world and had amazing experiences. Um, there was something about that that he 
created this story and then just has no idea where, where it's been that, that I wanted to try to capture in a poem. So, mm. yeah. If, if in that moment, if he had uh, wanted to tell me about yourself, would you have, or? I don't know about in that moment. I think it was just such a, such a brutal shock. I probably would have just muttered something and ran away <laughs> to be honest. Would have went back into my little boy self and not known how to act, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, there, there was a, there was an amazing retreat that I participated in when, in Thailand with a, a Zen master named Thich Nhat Hanh. And he took me through a really beautiful meditation of, you know, imagine, and, and this was like seven hours, right? It, this thing went forever and it was a big part of it was imagine you and your father as five or six year old boys just playing in a stream and you're throwing rocks and you're, you're just having fun. And I think for me, it was the first time where I saw my dad as, as the little boy that he was right. And that he, that he still was. And, um, it allowed me, I think, to, to, to dive into his own story and the, the trauma that he experienced and put together a fuller package of, of who he was. Um, yeah, so that was super helpful. And from there, I, I did reach out to him. We spoke, uh, we spoke over Skype for an hour. Um, 50, 50 minutes of that conversation was about him beating the shit out of other guys. And uh, that was when I realized this, this, isn't a, this isn't a man that I want in my life, mm. right? There was a sense of closure there. Um, I, don't, I don't value those stories. I don't value who, people who engage in those actions and then feel the need to brag about it. it, it yeah, it, it made me feel like I made the right decision to, to um, kind of close that door, you know? Yeah, so. I mean, even how despite how painful that is, I can appreciate that, that knowing that, that, that confirmation can be less painful than a, a lifetime of wondering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, yeah, that you said it perfectly. Um, David Carpel just joined the line who I mentioned a little bit uh, ago. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's this community, man. It, it matters so much. I've, I've been so supportive, Joshua Gray and David. Um, I'll read another poem here if that's okay. Skulls and berries. Great. The title. Uh, Skulls and berries. The line at the concession stand died down at the end of halftime. No fries left, hot dogs long gone, only candy remains. All we have is skulls and berries, she says. The sugar-coated chewies are the same, but for their shape. Still, the counter has been split in two. Form one line for skulls, form one line for berries. As there is no line yet, I ask for berries. These ones here is for girls, she says. You buying for a girl? No, I say. Then you mind if I give you some skulls? I don't want to run out of berries and then girls come for them and we're all out because boys bought them. Beside me, three boys approach the skull side and I now hear girls in line behind me. Yeah, that's fine, I say. Wishing I'd have just entered the line when everyone else did. Sorry, she says. Just trying to keep some order here. I pay for my skulls. Hear the whistle before kickoff. Feel the vibration as crowd stomps bleachers. Watch the football fly into the air. Just trying to keep some order here, right? Yeah. Like the, the power of that line and then here we are. I, I forget about it. Everybody forgets about it and we just go back to watching football in our regular habits. Yeah. Maintaining so, your order. <laughs> maintaining the order. Yeah. So yeah, just little, you know, that, that um, just trying to keep some order here. That's been in my head for 15 years, right? Yeah. It's just one of those things. And uh, it wasn't until I was like, you know what? I'm going to put a book together about this, that other pieces came together and could form a mosaic out of it. Um, yeah. No, that is, that is a standout line. I'd like to think that that would ring and I'd hold on to that too. I don't think I've ever heard, certainly at a concession stand, someone sum up the society <laughs> food for your gender. Yeah. And again, I don't think there was anything, um, you know, kind of consciously, I, I don't think she was trying to separate gender. She was just, she was just going along with it. This is what she was told to do. Right. Yeah. She's trying to make her job the easiest thing it can be and just get yeah. that day over with. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's probably what the, you know, the purpose of so many boxes for all beings are to make it, well, to make it easier to be controlled for the boss, the overlord, the politicians, whoever it is that wants to be above. Indeed. Mm. Um, and so the other, the other thing that's been interesting to me, and this is kind of the, the second half of my career, I guess the first part was investigative journalism. I'm now 
I've moved into marketing uh, and love it more than anything. And um, again, it's, it's created this new lens where I'm able to see advertisements and marketing through an entirely different lens in a way that, uh, that affects people. So if it's okay, I'll read one more poem kind of based no, on, on that. Um, it's called Real Men. Uh-oh. I, I want to pretend this is about the show. You ready for this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, real men. Real men drink whiskey, read the framed flyer at eye level of every urinal. There we men all stood with our penis in our hands, pissing and pondering, unable to look away from the sign for fear of being judged. The man in the flyer was jacked, biceps bursting out of his rugged flannel, sleeves rolled up to the elbow because his Popeye forearms needed space to breathe, goddammit. I zipped up, flushed, turned to wash my hands, and the man and his son entered. They were both wearing plain white t-shirts with Google on the chest. The son looked to be nine or 10. I scrubbed my hands, hoped he had to shit instead of piss. As I left, I imagined him squaring up to the urinal, reading the sign because he could, and then reading it again, the message sticking in his brain long, alongside so many others just like it. Instead of asking, he'll wonder, how can I be like my dad? How can I not be like my dad? What sticks may be what stung, or what confused, or what boldly told him outright. Real men drink whiskey. I order a portobello burger with avocado and arugula, realize I've been around long enough to probably know what he's been taught to think my choice really means. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> well, like, I, get, I, I need to invest in urinal cakes, I guess. <laughs> Real men show right there on, on the <laughs> yeah. urinal. Eye level. You can listen right here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, yeah, those are so are are have all of your books been kind of a theme like intertwined with your observances and your personal experience all at the same time? Yeah, yeah. So I mean I, I think, you know, ten years ago or fifteen when I started studying poetry, I was seeing I was seeing books built with poems that really weren't interrelated and then the the author would would come up with some clever title that made it seem like they were and there just really wasn't there really wasn't a theme um and i think it's it's a throwback to you know the 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 themes that can run through a novel for example for example right and so poets felt the need to yeah this book all is about this and, and no it's it's really not so i i as soon as i started writing poetry and i think just for my own focus it was really helpful for me to carve out that theme first. Um, and then the books usually came together pretty quick. Uh, Chittagong, the, the, um, the book right before Man Box, uh, was about the shipbreaking yards in Bangladesh. Um, from start to finish, that book came together in six weeks. Uh -huh. So it's just a very anaerobic experience where I purposely enter into that echo chamber and, and just go, you know? Um, Cool. And do you already have next possible themes in mind or? Uh, I'm taking a breather from the poetry scene. So I just want to, I, I want to open up conversations about Manbox. I, I want to be talking about this as much as possible. Um, going into universities, you know, just taking my time, opening up those, those conversations. And uh, uh, I'd be happy if, if, you know, that's what I do over the next few years. Oh, cool. So um, I have a few books in mind, but they're on the marketing side of things. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, in terms of poetry, I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna lay low for a bit and and uh, you know just have readings and talks here and there. Well, it'll be interesting to see uh, what sort of the what assumptions are made when you're someone that says you love marketing. Oh right, yeah. What do you th what do you think about that? Hmm. With with uh, over 20 years of high tech marketing in my background, yeah. I, I would go, "You're lying." First of all, it's my first reaction. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, I, I think for me, it was, um, you know, I, I'd put my life on the line and, and um, there was a, there was a time in Bangladesh where I had two machine guns pushed into my back. I'm there by myself. Nobody knows who I'm with. And I'm going to tell a story about boys that have been handed blowtorches and they're told to, to break down these ships, right? And pieces are falling on them and there's kids without arms and there's kids without eyes. And, um, and so I would, you know, I, I'd take three months and tell the best story of my life uh, and even a publication like Newsweek didn't know how to reach a targeted audience with it so after the first couple of days if it didn't pick up it didn't pick up um, and yet I would read certain blog posts from people like Andy Crestadina at Orbit Media 
and Rand Fishkin at Moz, right? And, and some, of these, some of these bloggers who had built these amazing ways of, of getting people really great information and, and getting them engaged. So that's where I fell in love with marketing. Cause I was like, man, you can tell, you can tell amazing stories. Um, and it doesn't matter unless you pair it with this understanding and empathy for your audience. Like you've got to know what they want. You've got to know where they are and how to get it to them. So it's not this interruptive, um, ignorant experience. It's like, you're actually trying to inhabit their, their life and their, their problems and then creating content that solves it. So for me, that was like, again, I think I had a very different, you know, opening experience as a marketer um, in a similar way that I did with poetry, where it wasn't the AB sing song stuff. It was like hard hitting. I think with, with marketing for me, it was, it was like all about empathy from the get go. And if you're not doing that, actually, you're, you're kind of a bad marketer. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I fell in love with it. Um, yeah. Cool. So it's, it's the, it's the connection or the potential connections being made. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's, it's connecting with people. It like, I mean, you know, in the high tech space, which isn't a world that I'm from that have like particular set of challenges that I just never would have, I never would have understood the pain of it. Um, but you get on the phone with them for an hour and you're like, Oh man, that really sucks. And let's, let's try to create something that helps that. So, yeah. Well, really and I think just from a creative standpoint too, there's, there's just so much you can do creatively as a marketer that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I see a parallel between, between that and the creative writing I've done. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you're, uh, you love a creative challenge. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just, you know, here, Cameron, I need you to market these widgets. Like, <laughs> right. Like we have like the company I'm with now solace. We have like, we've been working on like seven or eight events. So we've been coming up with copy for all the, all the banners at our events. Right. And we have a creative directors like super smart and putting together all these cool logos and designs and just that whole creative process. I think it's, it's really beautiful. Um, especially if you're creating something that people find value in. So, mm. yep. So in, in your circle of, of poetry, um, is there anyone out there doing poems on content marketing? No. Ah. What are you saying, Andy? I'm saying this there's an <laughs> untapped niche there and, uh, <laughs> That doesn't want to be filled, probably. No, I don't think I don't think we're going to fill that one. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. So you know, the other thing I want to say is just the uh, the fact that Lisa Blacker and Lasting Impact Press. Um, again, it, it was it was just like Lisa Hickey so many years ago, where I sent the manuscript along, and you know, response within an hour, like this. Yes, let's do this. Let's mm. publish this book. So. Yeah, I, I think the box is disintegrating and there's, there's just such amazing people carrying the flag out there and, and doing the day-to-day the -day work. I mean, like yourself, right? Hosting this, this podcast. So um, it's, it's us having a space to come together and communicate and stay in touch and learn. And it's super important. Yep. Tear down the walls. Yeah, man. Cool. So uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? See what you're up to. I'm on the Twitters. As people know, I'm at Cameron Conaway on Twitter. Um, and then just cameraconway.com. There's a little, there's a little contact area. People can jump on there and chat. Um, I'm usually pretty responsive. So, you know, I, I love, if, if you wanted to shoot me an email, I'm, uh, happy to, happy to respond. And, um, I have a poetry class on Skillshare that kind of breaks down. I believe it's the number one ranked class still on Skillshare. Um, so I put a framework in place for, you know, how you can find your theme that you want to write about and, um, how you can, capture those ideas, how you can pair them with other ideas. It kind of breaks all that down in a single class. So I interact with my students on there. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it, Andy. Cool. Um, so on the blog on realmenfield.org, we'll be sure and include links to all the ways to connect with you and, and we'll, I'll track down your class as well. And are, are all of your books available on Amazon or what's the best way to, to get the man yeah. box? Yeah. Amazon is the way. All right. Beautiful. Andy, well, thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I really loved everything that you, you shared. And uh, I'm really gonna have to read them too and, and see if my experience is really different. And like, like, you know, yeah, you didn't emphasize that word just quite right. Ah, I know. Yeah, send feedback. I'm open to it. <laughs> no, I never knew that. But uh, yeah, th thank you for, for everything you've been doing for the good God, the, the journalism stuff, the really impacting and saving lives and telling stories. And um I, again, I, I just love how varied you are and, and your passion for all of it, even marketing. <laughs> I mean, there's only one way to go here. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks, awesome. man. Awesome.
So thanks everyone else for listening. Thanks for that joined us live and uh, be sure and pick up the man box, but, but, but don't live in it. Read it <laughs> and bust out of it. Beautiful. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next week, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Show us some love by visiting realmenfeel.org slash swag or digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.